Please take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 25, page 934 of the Blue Bibles in front of you. If you need a copy of the Bible to follow along, we're going to be in two chapters of the Bible this morning, so you might find it very helpful to have that open as we go along. We've been in the book of Acts for a while now and coming near to the end. This morning, we're going to give our attention to study and learn and respond to what God has for us in this part of his word, Acts 25 and 26. Uh, before I start, let me just say, uh, in case this of help to you, I'm, I am regularly, as I step up here to preach, and hopefully to encourage us to look to God's word and trust him again and live for him and turn over our lives to him if we haven't, I, I want you to know that your presence here is of great significance and importance to everyone else in this room. Thank you for giving your Sunday mornings regularly. Even though I know you know God calls you to do it, you willingly come here as a response of obedience and trust and worship. And I know that it's good for our individual souls to do that, and you found that to be the case. But I also just want you to recognize again, in case you've forgotten, it's good for all of us that you've come. To be encouraged by your voice singing with our voice, your presence, your desire to follow Christ with your life. It is encouraging even to me to stand up here and know that God has gathered his people here. He's gathered us all and he's using us each in each other's lives. I pray that if you're visiting with us this morning, you will get even a taste of that. And that you'll be encouraged to come back and see what life for you is available among God's people here. So we look at Acts 25 and 26. We're coming to the end of Luke's history of the early Christian church. Recently, we've been following Paul, an innocent man on trial by those who opposed the message of Jesus that he was declaring wherever he could. In chapter 25 and 26, his trial continues. And our study this morning is going to follow Paul through two significant conversations. One with uh, Festus, a Roman governor overseeing his case and trial. And one with a man who we'll learn more about named Agrippa, an interested listener. So that, those are the two headings for our study this morning. Uh, if you're taking notes. Two headings. Paul's appeal which we'll look at at chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. And then the rest of the section, we'll see Jesus's appeal. Jesus's appeal. Paul's appeal and Jesus's appeal. Let's first look at Paul's appeal. And let me set up the stage for us as we get into chapter 25. For two years now, this Paul has been under some form of arrest in Acts chapter 24, verse 27, Felix, the governor, his term ends. The one who had, who had brought Paul into prison. And Felix is a pre- replaced by another governor, a new governor, Portius Festus. Felix, in his time with Paul, had in the end done nothing really helpful for Paul. He had not helped to release him, even though Felix had acknowledged there was no case against Paul. He had left him in prison. And it seems over two years, Paul's case has been forgotten, at least by Felix, but not by others. Let's look at chapter 25. I'll start reading in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him. Asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. And that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Luke has given more attention to previous trials Paul has faced, but this one he covers in very short order because there's really nothing new to cover. 
Yes, two years have gone by, but the prosecution still has not produced any evidence or any material witnesses. But again, we see politics keeps the trial going. Just like Felix, Festus sees an opportunity to gain goodwill among these new Jewish subjects under his new rule. Ignorant of the issues and what happened in Jerusalem the last time, and the issues that would likely happen again, Festus suggests they just move the trial to Jerusalem. But Paul knows if that happens, his life is at stake and justice will likely not be done. He knew that he had been in good hands with Felix, but Paul doesn't seem to feel the same safety around Festus. So Paul plays his ace. An appeal to Caesar. Caesar at the time is Nero, but not the Nero that will come to be the church's mortal enemy, but the Nero who right now is under good influence and Rome is experiencing a a, a civil rest, a mini era of kind of a mini golden age. Persecution will only break out for Christians years, a few years after this time. As Paul makes his appeal to Caesar, this appeal, just to be clear, was not like our appeals, where a judge and jury at a lower court rule on a case, and then an appeal potentially moves the case to be adjudicated before a higher court. An appeal to Caesar was any Roman citizen's right to demand that his case be heard and tried in Italy before the imperial court. So as soon as Paul states his appeal here, his path is destined for Rome. Paul's view of Rome's civic authority comes out clearly in this section. And prompts us to think about our views. Let's read what Paul has to say in verse 6. After he stayed among them not more than 8 or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day... Festus took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. You see Paul's posture before the civic authorities? His posture prompts us to think about our own posture before our civic authorities. At dinner this week, one of my kids asked me what turned out to be a very challenging question. They asked, what does the word politics mean? Well, struggling for a definition, I turned to the internet and found the definition most close at hand, which was this. Politics is the activities associated with the governance of a country or other era or other area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. Paul will talk a lot about how he thought about the government in Romans 13, if you're curious. Go there and read it later. But even here, look at Paul. Are we to understand from Paul and his posture that he thinks of Christianity as a political endeavor? In Paul's mind... Had the kingdom of Jesus on earth, his church, been tasked with the governance of a country or other area? No. 
Was Paul, as a Christian, motivated to get into debates or conflicts or factions in order to achieve political power? No. Rather, from Paul and from Jesus, we get a composite picture of how Christ and Christians respond to earthly governments. They submit to them. And if at any point their obedience to God trumps their obedience to man, Christians accept the consequences they receive as part of persecution for Christ's sake. There is too much political activism mixed up in Western versions of Christianity. Travel to the Middle East or Southeast Asia. And there is so much less talk of political power there. That may be in some hearts because of fear. But it is also in my experience because our brothers and sisters there outdo us in showing honor to whom honor is due. There's going to be a lot of political activism happening over the next 11 months. And you will get a lot of pressure to join in for a cause. Many people will tell you it's part of your job as a Christian or our job as a church to get knee deep in politics. But check the record. In all Paul's writings, you never see him encouraging even a hint of political activism as an arm of the kingdom of Jesus. And by activism, I do not mean, I do not mean, hear me clearly, I do not mean you speaking clearly and rationally and winsomely in the public square for the common good. I mean a civic engagement that aims at leveraging Christianity in order to gain earthly political power. Or leveraging political power in order to try to advance Christianity. As one of your pastors and the one who will probably get the most airtime with you like this about these matters. And who will in turn probably get the most questions coming back from you about this. I'm probably going to frustrate some of you sometimes by how I discourage us from viewing our role as a church, as a political organization. Thank you for your patience. If you are already frustrated with me, please know that my aim in keeping us out of political power struggles is that we not get sidetracked or distracted from the core mission that Jesus has given us to do. Jesus put us here to tell the good news about him. He has entrusted us with that main job. And he left civic governance to other institutions. So if you would like to affect those as a citizen, that is a fine and good thing to do. To bring your influence as a Christian into those spheres is a great thing to give your life to do as your job and occupation. Provided, provided that you do it all in respect for others. And as you do it, you value the dignity of human life of those who even disagree with you in such a way that befits the name of Christ. In the culture, in the current of a culture bent on power. And the ways that it sometimes is to the detriment and pain of those who believe in Christ, we will naturally be prone to think we've got to get together and do something about this. We can, we can pray can trust the Lord. But I think often the inclination to do something is usually associated with doing something in order to grab some of the authority. And if we don't choose to do that, if we if we stay where we are, we may we may get criticized even by brothers and sisters in Christ that we're weak or we're passive or we're sellouts. But when I look at Christ and I look at Paul in the face of opposition, I get the impression they want us to be the kind of people who focus on what kind of people we are in the midst of the swirl and the chaos of our culture. 
not what we're supposed to do about it. As a church, we should aspire to be good citizens here in Kansas City. What does that mean? I think primarily for most of us, it's going to mean treating others with dignity and respect. Whether they have authority or they don't. Notice in this passage that it is those out to get Paul who are inhumane. They're barbaric and violent. But Paul is humane in the best sense. Even as he engages Festus, his judge, he is reasoned and respectful. Engaged with him to hope to get his attention on Christ. So may God help us to be the best representations of human dignity and value in the way we deal with others we don't agree with. Especially in political engagement. Especially how we talk about our authorities. May it be that people who disagree with our beliefs would be surprised at how loving we are to them. That we pray for our leaders regardless of whether their ideologies match our Bible. That we readily do what is asked of us by our civic authorities and honestly pay what we owe. And if you get agitated at that kind of idea of submission... Just ask, is that a problem with what God's word says? Has he not been clear enough? Or is it an issue in your heart? Does your heart posture towards your authorities indicate that you are ready to submit? Because that is what your God would have you to do and stop. Well, if I keep going on this subject, this will become my entire sermon. Can't linger here any longer. But if you have more questions or responses, let's study and talk about Romans 13 together sometime. Or even if you don't want to come talk to me, get a couple other people. Open Romans 13. Start there and see where it takes you. See what questions you might have had already get answered there. See what other ones come out that we can follow the Lord in faith and trust. Jesus had said that Paul... That he wants Paul to testify about him in Rome earlier in chapter 23. So as Paul makes his appeal here, you might wonder, did Paul know that appealing to Caesar was the way that he would get to Rome? Was he, in effect, taking responsibility to work out the plan of God through his own decision making? I don't know. And there's no indication that God has appeared in a dream to tell Paul to appeal to Caesar to get to Rome. It just seems like Paul has weighed this decision waited out and made a decision. And what happened through all that ended up being Christ's plan. Christ corralled human governments in the injustice of his own crucifixion to bring about the gospel. And Christ here is corralling Roman government to become an agent for his own gospel to spread through Paul. Christ can move any government to do whatever it is he wants When he wants. These are freeing thoughts. These are freeing thoughts for our decision making. One way or another. All our decisions. Are effectively an appeal to God's control. Like Paul. We do our best. We employ the reason and rationality. That God has given us. To weigh out the factors in front of us. We do the best with what we know. But we trust God knows more. Like Paul, we make our decisions with faith. We focus on what we think will be pleasing to God. And we trust God to guide the outcome. Decision making is a tough business. It's a good idea. It's a good idea to have conversations with other Christians before we make the big decisions. Oftentimes we don't see where we are overplaying our own rational power to control things. Or oftentimes we get fearful because we forget God is in control. But other brothers and sisters around you can help you remember that God is the ultimate government. And his goodness is effective. Whether we know we're making a good decision or not. So by verse 12, Paul has made his appeal. This is the first section. 
Now we see what Festus will do. Or more accurately, what Jesus will do. As he works through the kings and governors of the earth. So we turn now to Jesus' appeal. Festus' newness to this governorship helps explain what unfolds from here in part. He is very unfamiliar as a Roman and being way west of Jerusalem for probably most of his life, if not all. He is unfamiliar with Jewish law, Jewish beliefs, Jewish customs. So he knows in this trial he is quickly out of his depth and he needs some assistance in ruling on this case. So fortunately for him, help arrives in town right when he needs it. Look at verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. This is a brother Agrippa and his sister Bernice. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men in the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This King Agrippa is, is a ruler over a northern area of Israel, modern-day Lebanon. He is a, effectively a very minor figure in Roman government. But in terms of the Bible story, he comes from a very major bloodline. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. The Herod that the wise men talk to when they come. The one that tried to kill Jesus as a baby in a genocide. His grandfather was the Herod that killed John the Baptist. His father was the Herod that killed James the Apostle and was struck dead in Acts 12. So this Herod Agrippa had deep Jewish roots. His ancestors themselves being part Jewish and wrapped up in the story of Jesus significantly. And this Herod, like his forefathers, had effectively been a betrayer of his Jewish people. Against his kingdom, he had turned to gain political power through Rome. So it's interesting that Luke, the guy who writes both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, it's interesting that this historian behind both books ends up effectively chronicling two dynasties. Herod's and Jesus's. The Herods, at the birth of Jesus, start seemingly very great. And here they're on their way out to obscurity. We only know about them because we're Christians and read these things a lot. Jesus, however, begins in squalor and humility in a manger, unrecognized by those he came to save. And by the end of Acts, his name is exalted to the far reaches of the earth. There is a power that flashes 
and then fades. Then there is Jesus who reigns forever. But Agrippa still hasn't quite learned that lesson. Ironically, even though he probably was around when his dad in Acts 12 was struck dead for being a prideful glory thief, still here comes Agrippa parading around with great pomp. But ironically, no one has really come to hear Agrippa. They are gathered to hear from Paul, who carries the authority of Jesus' message with him. Though humble in his chains before Herod, Paul is great today in the eyes of every follower of Jesus. In Festus's eyes, Agrippa's familiarity with Jewish things will serve Festus tremendously. Festus needs some material to say to Caesar in order to introduce Paul's case to him when he gets there. And lacking personal understanding into these issues, Festus just doesn't know what to write. So he jumps at the opportunity to watch Agrippa talk to Paul in order to take some notes. And in this evidence-less case, it will prove to be the case that even the expert interviewer Agrippa can't produce what Festus is looking for. But that doesn't mean that Festus will walk away without anything noteworthy. So we now turn our attention to the conversation between Paul and Agrippa. This interaction, note, is not a trial of any kind. Agrippa has no jurisdiction in this matter. But what we do witness is one of the most explicit and thorough evangelistic conversations we have on record from Paul. Paul seeks to engage Agrippa with the gospel. He will drive home the point he has been making at every turn. That Festus himself noticed in chapter 25 verse 19... Did you see it there? That this is all about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So Paul's appeal, Jesus' appeal through him, will be that all his listeners believe in the resurrected Jesus. Look at chapter 26. I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 23. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with, all the, with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's presentation is straightforward. He grew up as a Jew. He was very devout in it. He admits that he opposed Christianity earlier in his life. He even persecuted Christians unto death for their belief that this Jesus of Nazareth was the chosen and anointed son of God sent to be the Messiah and savior of Israel. But then he met the resurrected Jesus. And everything changed. His mission from Jesus, given directly to him, explains why Paul has been all over Asia, teaching all about Jesus, and why he is standing in front of Agrippa, testifying to the same truth that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected King and Savior to be believed in. It's funny. As we've seen in each succession of Paul's trial, no evidence, no evidence, no evidence. Finally, Paul's like, all right, given the fact that there's no evidence for you to talk about to me from my accusers, let me bring some evidence. Paul, the defendant, brings the evidence. How about this evidence? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Then he makes Jesus's appeal to them. Believe in Jesus. The trial is not of Paul. The trial is of everybody listening that Jesus is raised. Why won't you believe in him? Now, if you're here and you don't know much about Jesus' story, we're getting close to Christmas. You might know a little bit about Jesus because of Christmas. You might think that the story of Jesus begins at Christmas when this baby is born in a manger. But it actually, the story starts a lot before that. Jesus' story actually has no beginning. You might be interested to know. Because he is one with God. Jesus is the son of God. He's always existed. God is one and yet three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we confessed earlier. They created our world together. One and three. They put us, humanity, here to enjoy living in a perfectly loving relationship with the God who made us. Unfortunately, you and I have all effectively rejected God's love in that act. We have tried to find life outside of God's rule. This is impossible. And so when we turn from God, we turn in sin. And we turn from life to death. And there's no going back to life in God Until our sin is paid for. And the one we've sinned against God has forgiven us. In the earlier parts of God's word, we hear mentions of a person. A person who would come and be this source of salvation and forgiveness. To bring us back to God. We hear mentions of one who will be a redeemer and a rescuer. A promised one who will deliver in Genesis 3. A kingly figure in the book of Numbers. And then it seems in other parts of the Old Testament we hear about what looks like another person. God's suffering servant who dies for other people's sins. A man of sorrows, Isaiah says, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected by men. A man who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Promises and the prophets appear and tell us 
that this suffering servant's death in our place will create peace with God and bring forgiveness from God. He'll receive punishment in our place that will effectively bring us peace. And the wounds we've experienced of our sin that bring death, from those he will bring us healing. And so as the echoes of a a redeeming king in parts of the Old Testament and a suffering servant in other parts rise and then fall silent in Israel's history of rebellion, now Paul is reopening the book. And he tells Agrippa, all those promises make sense. They come true in the man and the son of God, Jesus. As we confessed in the Apostles' Creed earlier, Jesus, born of a virgin, lived in righteousness, died in crucifixion, rose in resurrection. He is the king and he is the suffering servant. He is the regal lion and he is the sacrificial lamb. He is our ransom paid and he is our forgiveness applied. He was dead, but he broke the cords of death and he will come and apply resurrection power to all his people. The way back to God, Paul says to Agrippa, is through the Son of God and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And this risen Jesus sent Paul on a mission to tell everyone about him. Just as I'm telling you this morning, if you didn't know. If you don't know this Christ, who would come in kingship, And to suffer for you, I invite you to know him this morning. Turn. His life is good. It is full life. He will unleash and unburden you from every sorrow and pain of your sin or others. He will lead you in his grace. No one but Jesus. No one but Jesus can lift that from you. Come to him. Lay your burdens on him. We see Paul's boldness here again. And we wonder, how is it that he is not afraid to speak to his judges so boldly? I just keep asking that question. He is a human being after all. But Paul would want us to employ our minds with the truth he's declaring and and challenge us and, and say to us, if Jesus is raised, he might say, and I'm serving him, what reason would you enumerate that I have to fear? I don't understand. Paul would challenge us. If the resurrection is my secure future, then what in my present could I possibly be afraid of? He'd say. Church, we have a mission to speak boldly about Christ. And Paul is urging us by his example. Remember who you once were. Remember that Christ met you, Christian. Remember that he broke open the darkness of your life with glorious light. Remember that he he showed you how you once thought that life was outside of God. You remember that? But then, then Jesus came. And now you welcome the grace of life in none other than Jesus. That was his work for you. Remember that? Remember the resurrection power that's applied to your cold, dead heart and how you now live and breathe Christ? Why your life turned around when you repented and believed in Jesus? How your life continues to turn and look more like Christ as you continue to repent and believe in him? How it was that your turning to Jesus was affected by the living Jesus, not by a theory of Jesus or an idea of Jesus or a Jesus sounding religion or a myth of Jesus, but by a living king who interjected your trajectory to hell and put himself under your punishment and liberated you from the bondage in order that you might in his power stand up out of your death and brush off the cords of your sin. Remember that. Long our imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. We woke, the dungeon flamed with light. Our chains fell off and our hearts are free. We now rise and walk and follow him, our king. 
And if he is raised, we are saved. And if he is raised, others are in darkness and they need to be saved too. The church is a fire set ablaze by the Holy Spirit. Through our testimony about Christ, Christ lights up the dark world. So Christ does not want us being political activists. He sends us to be something much more important. Evangelists, heralds of good news, singing the same song the angels sang at Christ's birth. Glory be to God in the highest. For now through his son there can be peace in our hearts on earth. We like Paul stand in the middle of our culture and we are making an appeal. Jesus' appeal. 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Here is our message to anyone estranged and enslaved, be reconciled to God. What must we do to find peace? God has done it for us. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Put yourself entirely under the authority and care of King Jesus. Christian. Are you making that appeal to anyone right now in your life? You know, every platform we've been given is a podium for gospel proclamation. If we'll use it that way. Do you have a good friendship with someone you've known for a long time who doesn't know Christ? That's a ministry from Jesus. Do you have influence among powerful people? That's for the service of Christ. Do you have the opportunity to go see your family who don't know Jesus at Christmas? Jesus sends you there with the gift of his gospel to pass around. Perhaps you're not shining for Christ because the light of Christ is dim in your own heart. If your own trust in the resurrection is weak, so too will be our witness. What things in this world are acting as the kind of dimmer switch on the radiance of the resurrected Jesus that if you could remove them would set your heart aglow for him again? Is it worry? Is it fear? Is it the distraction of busyness? Is it sorrow, despair, doubt? Material gains. Well, the light of Christ can pierce every one of those dim and dark places in our hearts. How? Through our worship of Jesus. It seems Paul thought about Jesus Christ all the time. Doesn't it? I don't think that's an act. And his mind and mouth seemed occupied with the same subject as his heart. Paul lived in the light of resurrection hope. And when he saw darkness, he saw an opportunity for Jesus to shine there. The heart that is bubbling with worship for Christ will open and overflow to anyone who will listen. So this afternoon, with friends you trust and Christians you like spending time with, even today. Talk to them about how you and they might engage your own hearts in worship. So that you might engage others for Christ. Now many of you are shining Christ in your witness. And I am so encouraged by you and your example. It is some great help to me. Who feels like I am not so often. Benjamin, Mariah, Kirtley. Others here doing Bible studies on UMKC campus. Hunter Northrup taking a job at a Middle Eastern grocery store. So he can talk to people about Christ. Marvin and Kat right now on the other side of the world, teaching pastors to love and preach Christ. Daniel Schwartz on his way to Ethiopia, faithfully following Christ. Mary and Bill Beard going through the aisles of the grocery store, looking for people to talk to about Christ. Yes, that's a real thing. They really do that. Young men, some of you going to senior living centers. Others of you going to prisons, all to speak about the risen Christ. Shine. Shine brightly. Shine brightly, brothers and sisters, and may the Holy Spirit eradicate darkness through his powerful word testified from your mouths.
Jesus' appeal comes through Paul. Let's see who heard it. Look at chapter 26, verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, in those last verses, Paul completely exonerated, totally innocent. It's not what this is about. Festus obviously has some kind of worldly respect for Paul's brain, but his own brain cannot make sense of Paul's beliefs. And those who insist on making only rational sense of Jesus exhibit that they don't understand how it is that we know Jesus to begin with. Paul is out of his old mind, yes, but now he has the mind of Christ. He discerns the difference between what is natural and what is spiritual. So yes, apologetics is a good endeavor for conversations like this. There are people around us who will benefit from us having a few apologetic-minded questions for them when they tell us that our belief in a resurrected Jesus is insane. Or they just can't believe that. Be ready to ask. If it didn't happen, why would Paul change? Why did Peter, the one who denied and fled Jesus at his cross, die preaching about Jesus? Or if the apostles were sort of like all of a sudden struck with this confusion and were off their rocker, why did so many follow them? And and if the man Jesus, crucified in shame and disgrace, didn't rise, why did so many people say they saw him when it would be to incur pain and punishment on themselves? And how did the largest religion on earth spread from the witness of only a few average men in Jerusalem to millions and billions across our world today? But nobody's going to come to Jesus simply through a reasoned consideration of the evidence. Festus didn't, but often God will use these things to enter the mind and get to the heart. Paul knows what happened in Jerusalem. There was a history behind the claims he was making. Agrippa had been paying attention to the stories of Jesus, and now he's watching the movement of Jesus' followers grow and grow, running over his ancestors. And Paul sees his opportunity, and he decides he's going to press in. He tells Agrippa, Agrippa. It is all true. This is not ideas to be casually tossed around. This is reality to rest your entire existence upon. The world as Agrippa knew it is bending and twisting and changing. He needs now to believe what he is hearing. I hope we all believe what we're hearing. And I hope we keep believing. Festus and Agrippa get to the line and they stop. Not because what they heard wasn't true, but because they wouldn't believe it. Church, our message will not always be believed. Some will ridicule us for preaching an impossibility. Others will be offended that we suggest they need something more in Jesus than they already have in themselves. And still some will be saved. Let's not focus too much on the results of our witness. God is going to take care of all that. We'll see the results in time, as we're already seeing and have seen. As the years go on, we're going to hear more testimonies of conversion. We're going to celebrate more baptisms. We'll see more of our children turn their lives over to Christ. We'll sit in these pews for each other's funerals. And though we grieve saying goodbye, we will celebrate that those who die in Christ are raised with Christ. 
we will trust the power and promises of God that his word, when we sow it, will produce a harvest. And these things will take time. They will take a lifetime. Instead of fixating on these results, let's fix our attention on Christ. Let's keep reminding ourselves of his tremendous love and grace until our hardness breaks and our fears melt. Let your heart soar, believer, as you think how much better it is for us forever that we know the risen Christ. And then let's look at the world around us. You and I have what they so desperately need. They don't need our judgment. They don't need our politics. They don't need our arguments. And they don't need our anger. They need our risen Savior, Jesus. May it be that we walk through our lives this week. And our hearts would truly feel what Paul expressed and felt. I would to God. That not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And may Jesus make his appeal to them through us. Let's pray. Now, Holy Spirit, we pray that this word that has been proclaimed from your word would have its full effect. Do what only you can do. Resurrect dead hearts. Warm those that have grown cold. Encourage those that are weary. Motivate and move those ready and joy and worship to speak of you. Lord, all of it do and so much more. We look to you. We thank you that we are not waiting for a king, but you have already come. We thank you that our hope rests in one who has already been victorious and who will come again in full victory. We lead our hearts into deep and abiding joy that you, the Lord, are king. Your mercy is abundant and your life, when we find it in you, is forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.